Small Brains, Big Dreams is a podcast created by the Newborn Brain Society in partnership with the Canadian Premature Babies Foundation. The Newborn Brain Society is a nonprofit organization supporting a world in which all newborns have access to and receive the optimal brain care. We promote international, multidisciplinary collaboration, education, and innovation among clinicians, scientists, and parents. Preemie parent and journalist Jenna Morton is the host of this series, focusing on the role mentorship plays within this discipline. A podcast exploring mentorship within the field of neonatal neurology wouldn't be complete without a conversation with Dr. Linda DeFries. Dr. DeFries is a professor emeritus at the University Medical Center Utrecht, Netherlands. She's been working in the field of neonatal neurology since the 1970s with more than 300 published articles. Her research focuses on predicting neurodevelopmental outcomes in high-risk preterm and full-term newborns, with a special interest in neonatal stroke and brain plasticity. Welcome to Small Brains, Big Dreams. Well, thank you very much for the kind invitation. It's a pleasure to do this interview with you. I know a lot of people are going to be very excited to hear what you have to say. And I'd like to just start at the very beginning and share a little bit about how you came to be interested in the field of medicine, and especially neurology and infants? When I was at school, I thought there were a lot of topics that were interesting. So I found it very difficult to choose and to know what I was going to do next. And uh, yeah, I thought, well, things like biology and physics and chemistry, it's all there in medicine. So if I do medicine, I don't have to choose already. So that's why I first of all went to medicine. And then when I was at the end of my medical training, um, I did an elective in adult neurology and I really liked it. I, I was actually using a B mode, which nobody knows anything about anymore. And it was just a kind of ultrasound machine, one of the very first, and it could just show you the midline when somebody had a trauma and brought to casualty and I was allowed as a, as a resident to do this. So I found this really exciting. But then I, I did my real residency in neurology and I thought it was still very interesting that you could actually localize a lesion and then explain the symptoms. But then in those days, which was in the seventies, there wasn't very much you could do for the patient. So in fact, I thought this is rather depressing. Um, and then my next residency was pediatrics and they said, oh, are you interested in doing pediatrics? And I thought, well, yeah, maybe I am. And I, I like the idea that you were at the very beginning of life. And if you did something right, then actually the child had the whole future in front of him. So I changed uh, to pediatrics. Unfortunately, I got accepted for a training ship which was very hard in those days. And again, it's very, very hard right now. It's like, you know, there are hundred letters written and in the end there are three places. So very, I really sympathize with all these youngsters that try to get into pediatrics. It's really difficult. So then I, I did get into pediatrics and at the end of my pediatrics, I um, had the opportunity of going abroad for an elective. And that was quite new. And it's again, it's, it's weird talking about 30 years ago because now everybody has been abroad. And, uh, and then it was still kind of just at the beginning that you were allowed to travel and do something somewhere else. And then I got in touch with a, a hematologist and that was because my father 
learned how to, well, learned about hematology in, in the Hammersmith Hospital in London, which didn't exist in the Netherlands before the war. So this was, we talk about 36, 38, just before the, the Second World War. And he worked with somebody who then became Sir Daisy. And uh, so I got with, in touch with Sir Daisy, who was still alive, and my father had passed. And he said, well, yes, the Hammersmiths might be a good choice, and I will get in touch with Victor and Lily Dubowicz, who work here. And of course, you know, Victor and Lily Dubowicz were very famous because we can assess the newborn baby, a preterm baby, and with the Dubowicz assessment, you can assess the gestational age. So that name did really ring a bell, and I could go there for six months, do an elective. And when I got there, I met uh, Malcolm Levine. And Malcolm Levine was one of the first people in the world who was started to do cranial ultrasound. So rather than just having this B-mode and just going through the brain and say, this is left and this is right, you could actually now, through the open fontanel, you could actually see the brain. And this was extremely exciting. But again, if you look at the pictures we took in those days, it really is nothing compared to what we can see nowadays. And uh, so I asked him whether I could learn how to do cranial ultrasound from him. And he taught me how to do it. And this was all really an exciting time. And then after six months, I went back to Utrecht. And in Utrecht, I started to negotiate with the radiology department whether I could do it in the neonatal intensive care unit because I finished my pediatrics and I started to do my fellowship in uh, neonatology. So I, I was allowed to do the cranial ultrasound and I started my fellowship in neonatology. And then after about a year, I, I got this phone call from Victor Dubowicz asking me whether I would like to come back to London uh, to do some more research over there. And um, well, I was very excited about it because I really like doing research. I found out when I was there the first time. So I did come back to London and it was supposed to be only for two years, but in the end I stayed for four years. And that was really very, very exciting time. And yeah, working with Lily and Victor was very, very nice. They were very welcoming and very warm people. And they really let me into their lives. And uh, yeah, I always think about Lily Dewich as my scientific mom, because she really taught me a lot about doing research. So that's how I got into neonatal neurology, really. And then when I had been there for four years, I, I decided to go back to the Netherlands, um, even though I was given the opportunity to, to, to hang on. Uh, but I thought, no, I, I want to go back. Um, and then there was a close friend of the Dubowitches who was Paul Kazar, uh, a pediatric neurologist from Belgium, from Louvain. And he said, so if you want to go back to the Netherlands, why don't, why don't you spend some time with me first and become a proper pediatric neurologist? If you want to continue in the field of neonatal neurology, I think it's also important that you know more about pediatric neurology. And I thought, yes, that's probably true. And so I did go to Louvain and I spent uh, another two years there. And then after six years abroad, I came back to Utrecht. And then I spent the next 30 years in Utrecht and, and starting to into the field of neonatal neurology, which I all kind of learned in, in London. I love the idea of having a, a scientific mom. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm sure there are some people out there now who who feel that way towards you. 
And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about that, that next 30 years and, and the next part of your journey. In the beginning, I, I felt a little bit kind of anxious because in, in London, it was like we did everything for the first time in the, in the world. It never had been done any, anywhere before. Uh, it was really exciting time because MRI, which you now just order an MRI and you get a thousand pictures. Uh, in those days, you went with a child for the first, very first time to the MRI magnet and a child had hardly ever been done. And you would sit there for an hour and you came back with literally three slices. So one, two, three. And uh, that's now people cannot imagine this anymore. But this was really the forefront of everything. So coming back to Utrecht, it was like, wow, what am I missing out in London? And what am I going to do here? And then starting all, all of this, I was really very fortunate that uh, my close colleague and friend, Floor Schoenendaal, he was becoming a neonatologist in Rotterdam, another university in the Netherlands. And um, he did his thesis on uh, visual impairment in, in the newborn infant. And he was very interested in neonatal neurology as well. And the center where he was training was more interested in, in feeding. Uh, so he came over and said, uh, what do you think? Uh, can I come here? And I said, yes. And uh, this was really so wonderful because we had a, a very good collaboration and we developed things together. And this was really a great time. And then later on, Frank van Bell uh, came and we became the head of the department. And so the whole thing of the neonatal neurology focus within our department was set. And so it was very exciting. And then MRI became more normal. And we started to work, especially on, on the early prediction of outcome. Uh, we didn't like the idea that you always tell the parents, well, you just take the child home and we'll see and, and wait and see what happens. And I thought that was not right. And you could say so much more about the future of the child and then also start to, to interact with the family and the physiotherapy and all those things. And I also found out over the years that the parents who knew from the very start that a child was going to have, for instance, a motor problem, that they, they were accepting and, and it better than the parents that always thought the mom always knows. So the mom always thought there's something wrong with my child. And then people said, no, you know, it was just preterm. We'll just wait and see what happens. And then in the end, they did find out and I, they found that more difficult than knowing from the start and being able to start working with the child and, and, the, and the physio or occupational therapist or whatever. So we gradually kind of changed that over time, I think. And um, yeah, the research that we did had always a kind of clinical message. Like if you see this on your MRI, then it's likely that the child is going to develop like this. And I really like that idea very much. If you see what happens over those 30 years, like progress in imaging, MRI, uh, starting to use continuous EEG uh, to look whether the child had seizures or not and treat them early. That's really so nice that all this happened while you were working here. But I also think that the, what happens now is, is even more exciting that you are able to start intervention and, and treating. And unfortunately, at the, uh, since 2008 in the Netherlands, uh, Flores, my colleague, he started to implement uh, hypothermia in, in, the, in the Netherlands, in our units, and also in other centers in the Netherlands. And cooling a full-term baby with perinatal asphyxia was amazing that you could actually start doing something rather than just look at the child and tell the parents that there was a 
problem that the MRI didn't look good and that there wasn't very much you could do except keep the glucose okay and treat the seizures as much as you could. But now you could see what was happening and that everything was getting better. Your MRIs didn't look so bad anymore and outcomes were reported to be better. That was the first very, very exciting uh, progress that you could move from prediction to actually treatment. That is, I, I get goosebumps listening to you talk about all of these leaps and bounds that we've come scientifically, but also in terms of like you say, talking to parents and understanding more about their needs. Can you talk a little bit more about how that shift has been happening in terms of including patients and their thoughts in your research as well as your work? As a neonatologist, I didn't only work in the neonatal intensive care units, but I was also able to uh, perform the, the follow-up of these children and work in the, in the follow-up clinic and see the children till they were eight years old or so. And so in this way, you also got a connection with the parents. You learned to know them better. And um, you also saw what they were facing. And especially a lot of the bureaucracy uh, is really a problem when you have a child with a handicap and you try to, to get aids for your child or you get into a certain rehabilitation center and um, so you also saw what was important for them, what were their needs. And also, I think it over the years has been, we start to realize more and more that we need those parents to help us to focus on our research as well. And I think that has become more and more apparent and, and we have started to recognize this rather late, but I think in the end we actually do. And I think that's really important. And this, this connection with the parents also led to a project I, did um, some five years ago now, I think, together with the physiotherapist. We always work together in the follow-up clinic together with the physiotherapist. And we worked together for almost 30 years as well. Together, we, we asked uh, 27 parents, uh, can we use all the data from the very start and all the uh, things we collected in the follow-up clinic? And I always try to take some video clips from the children myself. And um, I kept all these video clips and I kept all their data about MRIs and EEGs. And then we asked whether they would give us permission to write a book uh, just about cases and then add a, a CD with the movies of all the follow-up visits. So I wanted to kind of bring this home to them and say, well, if you have a child with a stroke, then this child is going to look like this at the age of five years. And I thought that was really worthwhile. And, and I was really impressed because I, I asked 28 people and 27 families said, yes, go and give and, and, and use all these data, which was uh, very, very kind of them. And yeah, I, I really liked doing this book as well. It was like, you know, putting your photo album together when you've been on a nice holiday. It's like seeing all these families there with all the kind of pictures of their scans and at the outcomes and their pictures when they were in follow-up clinic, really a nice project. I love thinking of it that way as a, a photo album of, of all the people that you've been able to help and imagining all the hundreds and thousands that will come from that work. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit, you know, to the younger generation of scientists and medical professionals now, 
about building up those relationships. You've talked about a lot of people that you had the opportunity to work with, and they sound like such fantastic relationships, but we all know relationships take work. What kind of advice can you give around that? When somebody wants to 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 work with you and um, in in the Netherlands we we have a very nice way of doing a PhD um, as long as there's money of course but if you got money for a project then a PhD student is working with you for three or four years and um, doing a project and and really getting to the bottom of it and they don't have to do any clinical work during those three to four years. So they can really focus on this research project, which is very, very nice. So it's not easy to know who is going to be with you for four years and it's going to work out well. So I always try to, to get somebody to, to yeah, work with you for a couple of days, like for instance, join you in the follow-up clinic. So to really know that there is a click and uh, that you think that you're you're able to to work together and i think they also have to have the same feeling and they also have to see that you're responding to their emails that you're not kind of so busy that you're they're going to be lost and i think it's also very very important that you'll be able to spend enough time um, that you're not working by yourself but that you're working within a team and there will be also other people that are going to support you. And, um, and I think that with the COVID that we are dealing with and people are working a lot at home, I think especially for the PhD students, that's really a shame because they were always kind of sitting together, working together, helping each other as well. And I think that was a very wonderful period of their, their life. And now they are so much more isolated at home during this period, which is hard. And I, I remember from my days at the Hammersmith in London as well that I so much enjoyed it, having met people from all over the world and, and uh, yeah, being able to work together and having both your own research project, but helping each other and also meeting other people from different cultures was really, really very nice. In the Netherlands, we had the problem, well, I thought we had the problem that it was difficult that we were speaking Dutch and getting people from other countries, you very often get emails, can I come and work with you? And I, in, an, in the beginning, I always said, no, it's impossible. We speak Dutch. We do everything in Dutch the whole day. And, uh, and then over the years, we allowed people in a little bit more and thought, well, if they have a project, they can do this. And we all speak English. So if there is a meeting, we can try and speak English there as well. And this has become easier. And now I think I'm, I'm really impressed with all the young Dutch PhD students. Their English is superb. And uh, so I think this, this limitation is not there so much anymore. And so it also has become a little bit more international in the Netherlands uh, as well. I'm wondering what you see when you look at your field and what might happen in the next 20, 30 years. What what are the, the areas that you think are going to, to be the focus and, and the types of champions that are going to emerge? Well, I think that the field has, has moved forward in, enormously. Like I said, the hypothermia has really been the beginning of it all, and it hasn't been a complete cure. It has shown that there's improvement. Um, but I like Donna Ferrero. She talks about cocktail on ice, so you need to add something to the ice. 
to get even better results. So I, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of progress there. Uh, some people are considering stem cells for those particular infants as well. Um, so I think that over the last 30 years, as I mentioned, it was really about prediction and trying to look after the children as, as well as possible. And I think the next 20 years or so, it's going to be hopefully fantastic and, and you're going to move to being able to treat the children more effectively, more intervention, um, and especially also with all the kind of artificial intelligence um, that probably is also going to make quite a difference to um, make, to diagnose things easier and faster and better and also going to really change the field a lot in, in, in every field, part of the neonatal neurology. On the other hand, I hope there are still going to be people around who are kind of having a more holistic approach because it's, it's also the danger nowadays that everything is getting more complicated. Uh, you, you cannot really think about something just yourself. You need a team, which is nice, of people around you to solve these problems. Um, but I also think that people are very often just so focused in one, the one very special topic uh, that they don't oversee the whole field anymore and uh, that parents are going from one person to the next. And I think they're, well, some people say a case manager is very important to, to help, yeah, to not have all these kind of little bits and pieces, but be still holistic and look at the whole child. I think that's important advice for everyone to remember for sure in, in many areas of our lives, really not just in, in this field. And on that note, I'm, I'm wondering, it's a very intense field that you work in. And I think younger people in the field might not always know how to balance their life holistically. What advice can you share and what, what kind of insight can you give on how you've managed over the years to, to learn to balance things? Well, I feel it's more difficult nowadays than it, it was 30 years ago. When submitting a paper to be reviewed by a journal, you would put it in an envelope and you, you would mail it to the United States and you would feel very relaxed because you're not going to hear anything about it probably for the next two months. So it was from your desk and you could just relax a little bit. But now everything is, is so costing so much and everything is so fast. You know, you got your email to look at, your WhatsApp, um, you know, everything. It's, it's so much to, to balance. And if you do not answer an email the same day, people think, what happened to her? She hasn't answered her email. And then you get at the end of the day, what is happening? On the other hand, there have been major advances this way as well, because somebody could share some questions to you and can you have a look at this MRI? What do you think? What would you do? So, of course, it's also been great that this is possible. And look at this now, talking to each other, and especially during COVID, working with Zoom or Teams has been amazing. And uh, having all these lectures every week from the Newborn Brain Society has really kept us all alive and up to date. So that's also very good. But I think for the, the younger generation, it's, it's definitely more balancing. Uh, it's, well, I wouldn't say it's more aggressive, but it's more, it's, it's such a fast lane. And it, I think it's 
especially if you have a family or anything, it's difficult to, to balance all the work that you have to do, uh, especially neonatology on calls are, are pretty tough as well. And um, yeah, being able to take the time off or to relax as well, which is extremely important because the number of people with burnout, especially the young generation, is pretty high. What do you do to avoid that sense of burnout? Because it, it, it's not just a generational thing. Everyone is in that same mix right now. Well, what I always very, very much enjoyed was, um, which is also now a little bit at a hold, due to COVID is all the meetings, as you, you said at the beginning, you know, we all know each other. And I've been very privileged to, to get to know uh, Donna Ferrero, spend some time with her. I've been with Stephen Miller uh, three years in a row as a visiting professor for a month. Uh, and all these people have become kind of mentors and, and, and friends as well. And going to a, a meeting, uh, any conference, you will always get to see people that you know quite well because the field is very small and this has kind of been building up quite a lot of friendships and staying on a little bit after a meeting with one of them has always been a very good balance for me as well so traveling I like a lot uh, seeing meeting people that you know that have become your friends over the years uh, that has been really rewarding and that is really a privilege with, with all the traveling and all the meetings that we attend wondering what other thoughts you'd like to to share with people listening especially that younger generation uh, that are coming up in the field well enjoy it you know it's such an exciting field uh, I think you can so much look forward to what is coming uh, to us soon uh, it's it's every every day there's something new like in the old days there were just a few journals and you could heat up the literature very very easily now the numbers of journals have increased so much and they're every day you, you really it's difficult to keep up with everything every day there's something very exciting that you want to read about and that you may come across yourself and may want to report um, i remember that that one of my mentors paul kazar he always told me um, always make sure that you have something on your desk that you're working on a chapter or a paper and I think that is very nice and very true as well. There's always something to do. And of course, try and keep a balance, which is important, but also enjoy the excitement. And uh, it's, a, it's a very kind of, it's not a build job. It's something else every day. And there's always something new on the horizon. And I think you are, we are very privileged to, to have been working in this field. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us on this topic. I very much appreciate it. Okay, well, my pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Linda DeFries is a professor emeritus at the University Medical Center Utrecht, Netherlands. Small Brains, Big Dreams is presented by the Newborn Brain Society in collaboration with the Canadian Premature Babies Foundation. Connect with us at newbornbrainsociety.org, on Facebook at Newborn Brain Society, and Twitter at Newborn Brains. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe.